Are you a home educator starting Latin and feeling overwhelmed? Are you a Latin teacher looking for new inspiration and ideas? Or are you a casual learner beginning your journey into ancient languages? If so, this podcast is for you. In each episode, language teachers and experts come together to share their knowledge and experience with you in an accessible, fun, and inspirational format. We'll break it all down for you, from teaching tips, to choosing a curriculum, to staying motivated and keeping it fun. We hope this podcast helps you become the best undead language learner you can be, wherever you are on your journey. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Demystifying Latin and Greek Undead Languages for Living Brains. Now, today is a very special episode. I'm really excited about this one. Yes, for sure. (laughs) I'm Dr. Kirsten Jaqua. This is PhD candidate Ann Phillips. And today we have three guests along for this particular episode. It's the first time ever that we've had guests, so we are very excited. We have... We have Rosemary Angles, Margaret Johnson, and Hannah, I'm forgetting your last Yes. Mm-hmm. Hello. Uh, welcome to all three of you. Rosemary and Margaret and Hannah are from Wyoming Catholic College. Mm-hmm. And they're along for this episode because Annie and I both learned primarily classical Latin. But as we've talked about in a previous episode, there is another sort of style of Latin, which is known as ecclesiastical or church Latin, something that neither Annie nor myself are super familiar with because we don't come from that tradition. But we wanted to hear from some people more familiar with this kind of Latin, the pronunciation, the uses of it, and people who have spoken it. Yeah, it'll be good to kind of bring some awareness to a whole other side of Latin learning that doesn't get talked about a ton if you're not specifically in those circles, but I think it's really interesting and could potentially be useful to a lot of to people who maybe aren't also in that tradition, but want to get more input or just want to know about it. And it's a big part of the history of Latin. And as we're going to discuss to some extent, the evolution of Latin into modern times. So we welcome all of you hello hello we are excited to (laughs) be here so we uh all three of you are new teachers fairly new teachers we just graduated in may and so we'd like to start with the question of what exactly is ecclesiastical latin and how does it differ from classical latin so i can start talking a little bit about Um, our experience with both classical and ecclesiastical at Wyoming Catholic College, where the majority of our professors spoke ecclesiastical. And they were pretty clear to us, even when we had a running joke at the school about how anyone who spoke classical instead of ecclesiastical, you know, at a Catholic school, we would call them pagans, we'd be pagani estes, pagani estes. Um, And our professors would kind of we, we got the sense that they were trying to get us to stop being prejudiced and, you know, they would go to conferences um, and immersion events and we would ask them what it was like, could people understand you? Because everyone else there would speak classical and they were often the only ecclesiastical um, speakers. And they would say, oh, it's just like, you know, if you go to a different part of 
um, America and the people there have a slightly different accent than you. You can understand each other just fine, but um, you do notice a difference in the way they speak, but it's the same language, you know, they use the same words. Um, and that's not getting into the history of it too much. That's sort of mostly talking about the pronunciation. Yeah, the pronunciation is what I think most people think about when you contrast ecclesiastical versus classical. But another interesting aspect about the difference between the two is, you know, where they come from. What's the background behind them? Obviously, Annie and I have talked on several other episodes about how learning classical Latin and typically learning Latin in general is an interesting experience because you're speaking a, a language that's not changing very much anymore. It's kind of been frozen in time, it's fixed in stone, and it's not growing and changing the way that a modern language that's being spoken every day in a lot of places changes. But ecclesi ecclesiastical Latin is a little bit different in that regard because it is still used today more so than classical Latin, as the three of you can attest. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's used in a number of places. Can we talk a little bit about where it's used today and why? Well, I think one of the main places it's used has been the church um that that's kind of where well, ecclesiastical yep. comes from ecclesia um yeah so it it's kind of the language of the church it's used um in the mass um and it's used for papal documents um, a lot of um the documents of the church are still even if they're not written originally in latin they're still translated into latin and that's the language that is they're officially in it's used in the church primarily yes yeah, it's, it's it's used in the church and it's being used in the church for some time i think we talked a little in our history of the language annie about that right yeah we talked a little bit about the uh sort of the gradual shift from latin being the more common vernacular language into gradually like with the, the advent of the vulgate for example, and then that helped the church kind of hang on to Latin as its main as its main language. And it, from there, because the church was also the sphere of the educated, that's, you know, Latin became their kind of official language as well, even when the rest of Europe started moving away from it and you started using other languages. Yeah, it was used I think I can't remember if we discussed this. It was used as a language of education and academics, and then it was also used as a language for the church. And you're saying it's the two things are connected because the church was the home of a lot of the educated people to begin with. But because classical or ecclesiastical Latin, church Latin, as it's often called, was you know used in the church in this way, it kind of lived as a living language for longer than what we know as classical language did, or classical Latin did. So the language of um, Cicero and Caesar, the one that we read in those texts, uh, it's different from ecclesiastical Latin in a lot of ways, where those languages, like we said, froze in time, froze in stone, and they are what they are, and they're not changing and shifting. Ecclesiastical Latin has some slight differences it's continued to be used. And I kind of had two things I wanted to discuss with the three of you. And one was, you know, where you, how you see the language being different because it's been used or continued to be used. It's spoken. And also uh, 
to what degree was the language that you learned at Wyoming Catholic different from what you see in classical? Was there a lot of focus on church documents when you were learning in your classes or, you know, church language or vocabulary? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I, I think it's also interesting to think about, you know, Latin as the language of the educated and sort of the language of academia um, and, and how that differs from it being the language of the church. In masses that are primarily in the vernacular, there's parts of the mass that are still in Latin. Um, and so you have little kids that, you know, if they go to church every Sunday, they can speak some Latin. Um, but at Wyoming Catholic College, we read, you know, we still read Virgil and Distica Catonis, and we did read some church documents, mm -hmm. but that wasn't really the focus of the Latin education. We worked with the text La Familia Romana per se illustrata, and, um, you know, uh, a lot of documents that you just read when you're learning Latin. And it was really cool to be able to uh, think about, oh, and how I can take this and I could go back and read those papal documents for myself mm -hmm. and, you know, not have to rely on the translation. And uh, something, yeah. something cool in our classes is when we were reading Aquinas and everybody who reads Aquinas knows sometimes we have to do a little bit of dissecting to understand um, what he's saying a little bit. Not to say that he's unclear, but just he speaks differently than we do um, sometimes is like we were confused as a class as to what he's saying and then the professor would suggest let's turn to the Latin and oh well in Latin um, this word can mean this 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 and just look at the alternatives um, and I guess <laughs> that wouldn't necessarily bring us to a direct like precise point as to this is what he was saying but a few different possibilities. Yeah, it helps, obviously. I could see Aquinas being, Aquinas is a lot later than a lot of the classical texts that we read, and that in itself would inherently kind of remind us of the evolution of the language, because it did change over time. But it's really cool that, you know, you can learn the ecclesiastical and not have any trouble with the classical texts, because it changed, but it didn't change as much as a lot of languages do. Like, English is a lot more different over that span of time than Latin, and that's partially because of exactly what we discussed, that it was this language of the educated classes to some degree, which, you know, ha has this effect. Right. And part of the reason why um, the church uses Latin in a lot of its official documents today is even though this pronunciation of Latin has stayed alive and it's not a reconstructed pronunciation, but it's just the way that the church has continued to speak it, mm. there is some careful preservation that goes on and it's valuable as a language for important documents because it's not as subject to change as um, languages that you know have vernaculars and things like that. And so we can definitely learn ecclesiastical and then go read Virgil with it, which is which is really exciting, as well as using the Latin to help us understand, you know, Aquinas's English and stuff like that. Yes. And uh, one, one other thing we really wanted to get into, one of the things we wanted to get into here was that, well, let's see, Annie's asking, let's see, um, are there any grammatical differences between classical and ecclesiastical? We'll, we'll cover that before we get to the question I really want to talk about, <laughs> which is Latin in the mass. But um, are you 
any of the three of you aware of any major grammatical differences between classical and ecclesiastical in what you did or not that come to mind? It, it felt like Aquinas was really using the same grammar as Virgil. Of course, Virgil's very poetic. Mm -hmm. And so there's grammatical differences across authors. But it wasn't like, oh, no, now we need a set of different rules because now instead of reading Aquinas, we're going to read Virgil. It was just like we're learning Latin. This is how the language works. If you're going to pronounce this ecclesiastically, then here's how you do that. If you're going to pronounce this classically, um, then here's how you do that is what I would say. Yeah. And I think when you're looking at the poetry, you notice a lot of elision and um, that's a difference that um, we saw mm -hmm. between Aquinas and Virgil. Horace. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's less about grammatical differences between the two. And since you say it's more of an accent than a dialect, mm -hmm. they're not two separate languages. They're just two stylistically different sort of ways of using one language. And that's typically true of moving from one author to another. You kind of have to learn the stylistic way of that one author writes. And it's not necessarily that that author is difficult to understand because of learning one, another one. It's just learning the nuances of how they use the language. But yeah, uh, the, the other issue that we wanted to talk about or question that I was very curious about, because this is not something I know a lot about. I'm aware of a discourse, a debate perhaps even, over using Latin in the Catholic Mass. And all three of you, I believe, have been to Catholic Mass and spoken Latin Catholic masses, right? Mm -hmm. So have you been to a lot of those, a lot of churches that speak the entire mass in Latin or part of it? What's your experience with that? Well, um, I guess there's the, the old mass or um, like the extraordinary form as it's called. And that is the mass uh, before Vatican II. So that's completely in Latin. Um, all the mass parts are in Latin. Um, everything's in Latin basically except for the homily. Um, and sometimes they read the readings in English as well, but even the readings are in Latin. So um, that's kind of, it's a, it's a different um, form of um, the same rite. Um, whereas, there's also masses that are the English rite, but might be, they might have a lot of Latin used in them. So I guess there's, there's kind of two um, separate categories for Latin in the mass. There's kind of the, the more traditional um, form of the rite, which is, um, has differences in how the mass is structured as well. Um, or not so much how the mass is structured, but small differences. Yeah, very, it's, um... It's more of a stylistic difference, as Margaret was talking about, between the, the difference between um, classical and <laughs> between pagan, <laughs> between classical and ecclesiastical pronunciation. It's just kind of a different style. We wouldn't say that there's a substantial difference between um, the Latin mass and the Novus Ordo. It's all the same significant, you know, the consecration. Um, all of that is the same. So if you ever hear Catholics saying, oh, the, you know, <laughs> the Latin mass is the only true mass, then just ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> OK, 
opinions. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of really strong opinions mm-hmm. around the issue of Latin in mass versus no Latin in mass. And, and sometimes uh, the opinions seem to be divided along political lines, but it seems like both sides are really motivated by the same thing in some ways is they want the mass to be accessible for everyone. And um, I don't know if that's anyone's primary motivation, but I can see how Latin in mass and non-Latin in mass both achieve those goals, um, where if Latin is preserved um, and is no longer anybody's native language, it's universal. Mm -hmm. Like the church is supposed to be universal and it's everyone's and everyone can tap into it. Um, And we were actually at a mass the other day that was in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I only know a tiny bit of Spanish and, you know, I was following along as best I could, but then the parts of the the mass that were in Latin. So this was a, um, this was not a traditional mass because it was in the vernacular. It was in Spanish, but it still had some parts that were in Latin. And, you know, those were really great because, oh, I can, now I can fully participate Mm -hmm. even though I don't know the language. And so wherever you are, you have that, ability to tap into your tradition and then and then it's really clear to see how having the mass in the language that's most spoken in the area is is really easy and accessible for people to understand what's going on and some people will talk about how when you don't fully understand every word of the mass it's sort of more of a meditative experience and you're not sort of picking apart each word rationally but it's um it feels a little bit less like it's for you to understand and more um, something above you or outside of you that you're tapping into. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting opinions on both sides. I think would both sides agree then that Latin is kind of an integral part of education as such, if that's kind of the experience that they're aiming for? Perhaps. I think there are definitely people in the church who perhaps don't see the value of Latin. And I think perhaps partly because they want it to be so accessible to the people and Latin's not a language that anyone speaks as their first primary language. So I think some people don't necessarily see the value of Latin. On that point of the the value (laughs) of Latin, or I think one thing we talked about like very briefly, but we talked about this a lot, in college was the universality element of the Latin ecclesiastical, um, just having Latin in the church. Because my friend was telling me that on her honeymoon, she met this uh, priest who only spoke Spanish. He, he didn't speak English, but she didn't speak Spanish, but they were both like Catholics. And so they could talk to each other in Latin. <laughs> and um, I think that's, yeah, I definitely see value in that. My cousin had a very similar experience when he was visiting Rome and he wanted to go to confession Mm -hmm. and the priest spoke several European languages, but none that my cousin spoke. And he went to confession in Latin and it was a little bit rusty. It was a little Mm -hmm. bit difficult (laughs) because he knew Latin from going to mass and then had studied a little bit, but it worked. The the priest could understand him Mm -hmm. and they knew enough to communicate with each other. Some of our professors have also run into people in airports um, like and spoken <laughs> to them in Latin there. So it, there's some cool connections, you know, across borders that you get uh, knowing this old language. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, and I'm curious, just from your perspective, all three of you as scholars of Latin from college and teachers of Latin as well, uh, do you see 
value in it. Uh, you see the universality in this regard, you know, being able to speak to people from your tradition and in Latin, you know, whether it's confession or participating in the liturgy or understanding it or that. But do you see a value in it from the standpoint of tradition? Or do you think that that's not something that's necessarily required to maintain the tradition of the church? As you talked about, you know, the vernacular, it moves into another language. Um, well, like, as you guys like Virgil so much, you know how he talks about his, his piety is uh, uh, in the Aeneid, um, Aeneid's, the piety that they talk about is, you know, bringing back, bring some of tradition, but then also moving forward. And I think that's significant when you're trying to respect, um, respect some kind of organization, even if it's a divine organization. <laughs> yeah, so in that regard, do you see the language as connected to piety or is it just the meaning behind the words? Because people have different perspectives on should the mass stay in Latin because it's the heritage of the church or is the meaning that is carried through the mass something else? Uh, on the most recent Latin immersion trip I was on, we were talking about this question. We were talking about why is Latin important in the church? And one of our, one of our professors just uh, a phrase I really remember him saying, because we were having this conversation in Latin. Um, he was saying, si mater donum dedit, si mater donum dedit. If your mother gave you a gift, you know, um, what would you do with that gift? And the question wouldn't really be, oh, well, is it necessary for me to keep this gift to have a good life? It would be, um, so of course, seeing the church as a mother and Latin as a gift passed down, um, sometimes the question is, for me, is less, do I need this to be a good Catholic and <laughs> to fully take part in my heritage and more just like, well, there's this beautiful thing passed down to me and and it's beautiful. And Latin is wonderful. Latin is a wonderful language. I get to tap into so many cool, um, like reading Ovid in Latin. It's just, there's so many wonderful experiences. It's just a beautiful thing um, that it's maybe not mandatory, but it's um, why would you not accept it when you have the chance to sort of, you know, if you're lucky enough to get to study Latin and get to speak Latin with your friends and speak Latin at mass. It's a beautiful thing to do. That's how I see it. That's a great perspective to have for all of us who are lovers of the language and teachers of it as well. No, I mean, I, even I'm not in the Catholic tradition, but I do feel that you know, being able to learn the language and have that connection with people in the tradition or you know, people that just you know, know Latin or are interested in it, it's, it is a gift to be able to enter into that world. Absolutely. Did you have any other questions to add, Annie? Uh, not at the moment. Well, with all of that in mind, for any of our viewers who are not familiar, uh, we've, Annie and I have pronounced a little bit of classical Latin. Typically, I can give you a few, a couple lines from the Aeneid so you can hear the contrast, or I can say one of your lines, uh, one of your prayers in the classical Ooh. pronunciation to contrast. Um, I'll, how about a few lines of the, we have the Our Father, Pater Noster. In the classical pronunciation, it would be pater noster, qui es in caelis, sanctificator nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum. Or in the ecclesiastical. Or ecclesiastical, sorry. Yes, <laughs> it would be pater noster, qui es in caelis, sanctificator nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum. 
just a few lines. The contrast. And we have a few more examples of our classical, or I, I keep confusing myself, ecclesiastical pronunciation, lest I say it wrong, mm -hmm. um, which I believe all of you learned to speak Latin in this accent, as you tell me. <laughs> what do you have? Uh, I'll Hannah. do the Sancte Michael. Sancte Michael Archangeli, defende nos imperio, contra nequitiam in insidias diaboli, esto presidium. Here, that's just a, it's part of it. Diaboli. <laughs> and Rosemary. Oh, I would have to, I would have to read it off the top of my head. Oh, and the Ave Maria, the Hail Mary is Ave Maria, gratia plana, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tu, Jesus. So we have a few, a lot, of course, of ecclesiastical Latin. We have a lot of prayers and lines from the mass that you would be familiar with in this. I didn't know that regnum was pronounced that way. Right. Regnum tuum. That's really interesting. I knew about the C's that are ch, and then you pronounce the V's as V's instead of W's. In T-I's are a little bit different too. Instead of gratias, it's gratias. Gratias. Oh yeah. It's, it's a little bit more like Italian. Yes. It's interesting. And we can, I think one of the best examples of two of the major differences in these pronunciations is the statement from Caesar. I came, I saw, I conquered in classical, weeny, weedy, weeky. And in ecclesiastical, veni vidi vici. It's a good example of some of the basic uh, differences. But as uh, Margaret is reminding us, we also have the gn regnum and the ti gratias instead of gratias for the classical. We also have um, a lot of the diphthongs are different. So in classical, you have oe makes an oi and then ae is an i um in classical in ecclesiastical a lot of that gets simplified to a so um instead of for example the uh, feminine plural amikai you would say amike um in the ecclesiastical instead of like what is it moinia moins it would be just mania something like that in the ecclesiastical as well so the diphthongs are easier <laughs> in ecclesiastical Oh, that makes sense. So diphthongs have kind of simplified themselves in Greek as well, which is a whole other conversation. But it's great to have you all here to discuss this. This is Thank actually so a much. lot of stuff that I did not know about the pronunciation of ecclesiastical Latin. Same here. There's a lot more to it than I, I mean, I knew there was more to it, but I'm really thankful that you are all willing to be here and explain it to us. And then yeah, our, our following episode after this will be a little bit of a continuation of this. We will talk about the experience of immersive Latin. So stay tuned for that. Yes, thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe for future episodes. For more information, you can visit our website, museoneducation.com. That's spelled M-U-S-E-I-O-N, education.com, also linked in the show notes. We wish you a happy language learning journey.